Hey, Jordan, how's it going? What's up, Rob? Oh, not much. Um, I really enjoyed the last episode that we did uh, this week <laughs> with uh, Abraham Josie Reisman about the latest uh, the latest Vince McMahon scandal. I was in my element talking about uh, <laughs> Vinnie Mac and the absolutely depraved, disgusting acts which he's been now accused of, leading to all kinds of turmoil at WWE. It was really great to reconnect with, with Josie, multi-time guest now. I always like when we do little sojourns into the wacky world of, of pro wrestling, and uh, uh-huh. that was a really good one. I really enjoyed that one. Yeah, you really you were you were I was thriving. Fired up. Yeah, yeah, I you was. hit the ground running on that yeah. one. That was that was funny to see. Yeah, um, uh, yeah and and I'm like I, I've mentioned before, and I mentioned in that episode, I'm not a wrestling fan, but you got to recognize the influence that that company specifically has over American culture. The the the, the corporate tie-ins, the celeb tie-ins the appearances the cameos their influence over other forms of media other forms of sports and culture it is a really influential league even if you don't quote league or or, quote sport even if you don't like wrestling and he is as she writes about in her book ringmaster which we did an episode uh about last year he (laughs) hate him or love him and i think most people hate him He's a he's a very influential figure, him and his wife, especially in conservative politics. So that was a fun episode. Well, I wouldn't say fun, kind of fun. It was dark at times. I mean, it's what very is dark. A, yeah, I don't know how to describe it, but I it was a good episode. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I think like yeah, he's a McMahon, and uh, he's a, he's a uniquely American figure. I think like Trump as well. Like he's that's the kind of person that helped that built America. You know, the kind of. The carny, he's like the he's the ultimate carny, and he's it's so tied in with uh, with American culture. We talked about how you know Trump himself was so influenced by wrestling as well, and basically he'll promote his way into the White House in 2016. Um, so I really always have found it really interesting to break down, you know, the the world of pro wrestling and and apply that and apply these concepts of like kayfabe to. Uh, our sort of political reality. I find it's really useful and, and interesting, but this is a really horrifying scandal. Um, <laughs> we didn't even get too much into the details of it because of how fucking awful it is, but uh, I did mm-hmm. really enjoy the conversation. I hope people listen to that. That's a bonus episode for subscribers of the podcast. Uh, and if you're not subscribed, you want to get access to that episode and previous bonus episodes, you can do so at insurgentspod.com. Today, we're talking to Professor Sahar Aziz, uh, author of The Racial Muslim, When Racism Quashes Religious Freedom, and a professor at Rutgers Law about uh, this new report uh, called Presumptively Anti-Semitic Islamophobic Tropes in the Palestine-Israel Discourse. Uh, really fascinating to get her perspective on uh, the events of the last couple of months, the way that these accusations of anti-Semitism are really kind of cynically weaponized and deployed against uh, Palestinian activists on university campuses and elsewhere. It was really fascinating, and I really enjoyed this one as well. Yeah. She started this report well before October 7th, and unfortunately it became incredibly timely when she released it. So it was it was interesting to hear her perspective on the history of this type of dynamic, how it influences international relations how it influences 
American people's perceptions of Muslims, how Islamophobia seeps into the mainstream and shapes coverage of things like October 7th and Israel's attacks on Gaza after. Really, really good conversation. This was, this was fantastic. Yeah, it really was. And, and we got into this uh, briefly in this conversation. I think it's worth just uh, spending a few minutes on here before we get uh, to the conversation with Professor Aziz as well, which is the timing of the Biden administration and Justin Trudeau as well, followed, following closely behind, cutting funding to UNRWA which is a, a, as we know, it's a vital uh, organization that delivers uh, life-saving humanitarian aid into Gaza the very same day. I think, like, I'm, I'm, I have a really low expectations for, you know, what our governments are capable of. This, I think, the cynicism of it and the depravity of it has, has surprised even me. The, at the very same day that the International Court of Justice hands down this historic ruling against Israel, which determines that these genocide allegations uh, being brought by South Africa against Israel ha- have credibility and demanding that they stop the violence. The very same day, instead of talking about that in our media, instead of the Biden administration or the Trudeau administration, you know, maybe reflecting on the fact that they've been totally subsidizing this uh, genocidal violence, on the very same day, we get spurious reporting about UNRWA employees, a small number of UNRWA employees is the largest employer in Gaza, a small number of employees being somehow connected to the events of October 7th. And just these accusations is enough for the Biden administration to uh, cut funding to this organization. It is genuinely, we've seen a lot of depravity over the last couple of months. And this, this I think, surprised even me with how absolutely grotesque it was, um, the timing of it. Yeah. Ryan Grimm in the State Department briefing, either today or yesterday, asked them about this, the timing, saying, okay, don't you think it's a little strange that the same day we get the ICJ uh, report, this comes out? Do you find that strange? And the State Department spokesman was like, "No, I don't. I don't think so. This actually came from UNRWA. They they were the ones who who wanted uh, us to know this. And as you mentioned, it the number who whoever is allegedly involved in participating in this, that number continues to get smaller as more and more reporting on this claim has is being published. Just before we started recording, I saw a summary of a Sky News report saying it's four people." allegedly now, down from, I think, what, 15 initially. And I've also seen claims about all these, like, all these other people in in Gaza who are linked to both, or or staff members at UNRWA who are linked to Hamas, or have a family member in Hamas. It's like, none of this justifies cutting off the aid. And what we talk about uh, with Professor Aziz is how they'll take a sledgehammer to any sort of pro-Palestinian entity, organization, advocacy group, whatever. They'll ban groups from campuses. They want to cut off funding from UNRWA. But then today, in response to settler violence, some of it uh, conducted by Americans living in Israel uh, against people living in West, uh, Palestinians living in the West Bank, they the Biden administration is patting itself on the back for sanctioning four non-American people 
for participating in violence and saying, oh, we're tackling this problem of settler violence. Four people. So take a, a scalpel to uh, anything uh, that's uh, that touches on or deals with the Israeli side, but just a complete uh, d- dismantling or, or, or freezing or banning when it, when it deals with Palestinian advocacy. It's, it's really, really upsetting and a complete double standard. Yeah, and I mean, this, this settler violence in the West Bank, it doesn't happen in a vacuum. It's subsidized by the Israeli state and encouraged by the Israeli state. And like, it's not even about this settler violence in the West Bank as well, but it's like you've seen over four months just a nonstop stream of war crimes and just the most grotesque, barbaric violence and criminality on the part of the IDF for months now, which the United States government still fully supports. Um, regardless of how how criminal it is, we saw that attack in a in a hospital in the West Bank uh, just the other day, where Israeli commandos dressed up as doctors and assassinated a couple of unarmed quote Hamas militants in our in their beds, including one eighteen year old kid who's paralyzed from previous attacks. Um, you know, we've just seen nonstop violence and criminality and some of the most the brutal uh, crimes that we can imagine totally financed by the United States government, you know, that's totally no problem. Um, again, it's just a, it's a horrifying and grotesque double standard. And I want to talk a little bit too, before we get to the interview about, you know, the t- we talked about the timing of this uh, release of this information. And we're talking about a double standard. A lot of this took place in the Wall Street Journal. You mentioned there's this piece in the Wall Street Journal, Intelligence Reveals Details of UN Agency Staff's Links to October 7th Attack. Around 10% of Palestinian aid agency's 12,000 staff in Gaza have links to militants, according to Intelligence Dossier. And this is a piece in the Wall Street Journal by Carrie Keller Lynn, who served in the IDF. And... I think that's one of the most amazing things about our media, you know, in in both Canada and the United States. The way these kinds of links are just never disclosed or never talked about. And you actually have people in our media that have direct ties to Israel and the Israeli military, basically just taking uh, intelligence documents from the IDF and just repeating them verbatim in Western media, which then gets used to justify things like Biden administration cutting off the funding to UNRWA, this is never disclosed. Whereas you have things like their Code Pink, for example. Uh, there's a big article in the New York Times a few months ago accusing Code Pink basically of being a Chinese foreign influence op because Code Pink gets some funding from this American billionaire, Neville Roy Singham, who's an American businessman who does business in China. And that's basically the link. That's all they need to link this anti-war organization to the CCP and describing it as being this foreign influence op. But when you've got literal members of the IDF writing articles in the Wall Street Journal, or in the case of The Atlantic, editing the fucking Atlantic without ever really disclosing these ties that they have, uh, and then just promoting this specific narrative. And this is just never questioned. It's never talked about as being some kind of foreign influence situation. You know, it's just it's just absolutely crazy to me how much our media is com- totally complicit in just basically being stenographers for uh, Israel and their specific goals and the narrative that they want to impose on people, never being accused of having these kinds of, of biases. It's just crazy to me. Well, yeah, but also look at it in the context of how some media outlets responded to just having Muslims on staff. 
yeah. or Arab, Arabs on staff uh, in the in the immediate aftermath of October 7th. I mean, Mehdi Hassan, who who's now since left MSNBC completely and his show was canceled, but other Muslim uh, hosts, Ali Velshi uh, and at least one other uh, Muslim host, were, they were all completely pulled from their chairs. They didn't do anything wrong. They didn't misreport anything. They were just gone. No explanation. Nothing. No justification. So, yeah, it's it's, just, it's a complete double standard in the media where you have people who served in the IDF just peddling spurious claims, unproven claims, and the source is the IDF for uh, just influencing what people think, starting these international news cycles and responses, and ultimately leading to the freezing of some funding for UNRWA. It's just re- really dangerous and ridiculous. Yeah, and I think this phenomenon is uh, kind of exactly what we're talking about. This kind of double standard uh, is exactly what we're talking about today with um, Professor Sahar Aziz. I, again, it's a really great conversation. So why, do you want to just get into that? Let's do it. Yeah. Let's do it. And our conversation with Professor Aziz will be coming up right after this. Joining us now is Professor Sahar Aziz, distinguished professor of law and chancellor's social justice scholar at Rutgers and author of The Racial Muslim When Racism Quashes Religious Freedom. Professor Aziz, thank you so much for joining us. How are you, all things considered? I'm well. Thank you for inviting me to discuss this very important topic. Of course, of course. It is very important, yeah. Um... I guess to get us started, um, and do you want to just like maybe uh, just give a brief introduction introduction uh, to our listeners, Professor Aziz, and just let them know, um, you know, the the reason why we we connected on this on this interview today. Sure. Well, my research, for all the wrong reasons, is quite relevant uh, at the current moment, and what I've spent over two decades working on is how to combat. Islamophobia and how to combat anti-Arab racism that unfortunately has become uh, quite normalized and mainstreamed um, due to various factors, some of which your audience probably knows, especially during the Trump era when it was politically expedient and uh, beneficial uh, financially even to be Islamophobic. Um, And that led us to write a report at the Center for Security, Race and Rights called presumptively anti-Semitic, Islamophobic tropes in the Palestine-Israel discourse. And so I'm hoping that, you know, by educating people about these various tropes that have become common in addition to Muslims are presumed to be terrorist or violent or misogynistic, but also that there's a a false presumption that Muslims hate Jews. Uh, And when that presumption is treated as true, then it causes people to believe um, smears that Muslims or Arabs are anti-Semitic simply because they disagree with U.S. foreign policy or they're critical of Israeli uh, practices and policies and and want to engage in political debates and dissent from the mainstream narrative. Uh, So that, you know, this report, which is 
you know, the more timely component of my research is, is really what brings me here today. And hopefully we can have a robust discussion about the complexities and nuances of the Palestine-Israel discourse in the United States. Yeah, the, there's this narrative that usually is deployed in opposition of any type of diplomacy or one or two state solution, however people approach it assuming their motives are, are are genuine and altruistic any any attempt at negotiating peace in that region there's always this narrative that's deployed that well muslims just hate jews and this group or this faction just wants to complete eradication of jews and that is applied rhetorically in a lot of people's minds as a universal viewpoint and belief held among all muslims which is is not true treating an entire group of people as a monolith is just lazy and irresponsible. But in this case, it's especially dangerous because that's used to justify more violence, more attacks, more dehumanization, more Islamophobia. So when you see these the, these types of arguments deployed in the media, especially when it, when it filters into mainstream or legacy publications, I mean, how does that make you feel? What do you want people to understand about this narrative that all Muslims just hate Jews? Well, I, I hope they first know that that's false <laughs> and that yeah. just that, just like in any group, there are people who are hateful and they're, but they tend to be the minority. And there are people who are peaceful and people everywhere in between in terms of how they respond to oppression and injustice. And, and just like the Israeli response to the existence of Palestinians and, and of historic Palestine varies from very right-wing extremist terrorism to much more dovish, progressive, uh, peacenik, pacifist, and everything in between. And, and, you know, I, as a critical race theorist, one of the theories that we rely on in explaining various sociopolitical phenomena is how the social construction of race and racism causes certain groups to be treated as monolithic, and usually in a very negative light, not monolithic in a positive light, and other groups to be appreciated for their complexity, the individuality of the members, the, the nuances of, of history and time and politics and economics, and not having that privilege to be treated as an individual rather than collectively punished or guilty by association of one or a few people that happen to share your identity who committed uh, a wrongful act or a criminal act, that's a privilege. And so what, what you're seeing in the way that Palestinians, Arabs, Muslims are being discussed, treated, uh, and censored, especially today, is a racialization process, is what Unfortunately, many African-Americans have experienced since they were forcibly brought to the United States, uh, what many uh, new immigrants, especially from the global South and global East experience. And, and that's effectively you know, the, the broader framework to understand why is it that we think all Palestinians are just Hamas or all Muslims are just Al-Qaeda or ISIS. Whereas we do not believe that all white people or, people or Americans of European origin are Timothy McVeigh 
or that all Republicans or conservatives are the insurgents who did engage in criminal activity on January 6, 2021. Right? We appreciate that people are, are individuals and they're responsible for their individual actions. But we don't do that when we racialize uh, a particular group uh, in our society. So I think that's an important backdrop to, to appreciate and ask ourselves, would we be so sloppy or intellectually lazy or outright racist when analyzing the Israeli response or the Jewish American response to um, the Palestine-Israel conflict or issue or history as we would with Palestinians or Arabs or Muslims? And I can tell you the answer is no, because we have researched and so as many other scholars. And so the, the interesting then second question is why? And why can't we stop? And if we don't stop doing it, our foreign policy will continue to be lopsided, one-sided, and not in the best interest of the United States. Um, over the last couple of months, I, I watched the, uh, the Al Jazeera documentary, The Lobby, um, which really goes in depth about one of pretty much the central t tactic in Israeli propaganda, which is to go into college campuses and to uh, sort of create these controversies over the over anti-Semitism on these college campuses, conveniently timed to any time Israel is engaging in some kind of horrific crimes, whether it's you know one of the various uh, incursions they've made into Gaza over the years, or the Great March of Return, or one of the the, the every so often the the mowing of the grass as they call it, and any time that leads to kind of any pro-Palestinian sentiment on any of these college campuses. It's met with this uh, this outcry about uh, about anti-Semitism on campuses, and it's been really interesting over the last months. So I think knowing about that tactic and seeing kind of this this deep dive that kind of exposes the way this is really deliberately and cynically employed as Israel is engaging in like the most violent such uh, incursion, like pretty that you know many of us can remember. Um, it seems like because of that, it's led to such an increase in, in protests on college campuses and elsewhere. And at the same time, you've seen the exact same tactic and it's even kind of more desperate than, than it ever has been. And this, these efforts to frame these college students that are doing, engaging in marches or other activism for Palestine, uh, as being pro terrorists, pro Hamas sympathizers, anti-Semitism, of course, disregarding the fact that there's Jewish people involved in every single one of these protests on college campuses or elsewhere. Um, I guess as someone that were the, in academia, um, what do you make of this strategy and how, is, how has been your experience over the last couple of months, three or four months, seeing this tactic play out and, and seeing the response by uh, campus activists? It happened at Rutgers too, right? Yes, it did. So that it's funny you, you mentioned this because it, the, you feel that you are somehow trapped in a history book about McCarthyism. And you think, wow, this must have been what it was like in the 50s and 60s. Uh, it, because the way that the administration is responding in many of these universities is outrageous. And it's so antithetical to American fundamental values of free speech, academic freedom, the right to dissent, and the tradition of universities being intentionally spaces where students debate, disagree, engage in nonviolent protests or sit-ins or teach-ins. 
And instead of attempting to create a neutral environment that allows every side or sides to equally participate, what universities have done is they have used, abused, I think, their power to accommodate what are clearly Zionist agendas, pro-Israeli, uh, right-wing pro-Israeli agendas to just shut it down. Uh, and rather than try to create essentially equal space and equal access, and this weaponization of anti-Semitism is, so, is problematic on so many levels. I mean, first and foremost, it is dangerous, I think, to Jewish people. Because if you say anti, if you use the word anti-Semitism inaccurately and frequently to effectively quash legal political dissent, there will be a point where Americans will no longer believe you. And there are certainly instances of real anti-Semitism, which is individualized targeting of harassment, individualized, whether it's verbal or physical uh, harassment or assault because that person is Jewish, right? Or property vandalism because the target is Jewish. That is not what we're seeing on college campuses. What we're seeing on college campuses is a mass movement and protest to two things. One, the Israeli genocidal assault on Gaza, the International Criminal, excuse me, the International Court of Justice has already said there is a plausible case for genocide. And um, a U.S. district judge just acknowledged that the ICJ made that um, made that finding. And so there, so this is not a completely outrageous, you know, proposition. You've got thirty thousand plus Palestinians that have been killed in 110 days. You have 12,000 of those Palestinians that have been killed by Israel are children, right? And two thirds of the 30,000 are women and children. Uh, so the facts are clear. There's no factual dispute as to the, the horrors that have been incurred by the, by the Palestinians. So the, so the first issue is they are doing what American students, college students have done for decades and what America prides itself and brags about, that their universities are free spaces of inquiry and debate and disagreement, so long as they're nonviolent. And the second thing they're protesting is U.S. foreign policy and the U.S. aiding and abetting that genocide with almost $4 billion a year for the past 50 to 60 years. And now Biden is asking for another $14 billion, which is outrageous because we know exactly what that money is going to. It's going to kill Palestinian civilians. But he is having very tough conversations behind the scenes, uh, urging restraint and all this stuff as he's handing them the billions of dollars and, and supplying them with the bombs that they're using to drop on these uh, these families. So I have no sympathy for Biden. I mean, many people have said that Biden is about as right wing as one can imagine a president on the issue of Israel. His partisan identity is completely irrelevant. He is he might as well be the president of Israel at this point. It's it's just remarkable how he doesn't have he values Palestinian lives zero. He doesn't value them at all. And you you talk about the disproportionate response on college campuses, singling out groups like Students for Justice in Palestine, even Jewish Voice for Peace. I mean, that, that is, that's a group that had chapters banned on various college campuses as well. You don't see you know, pro-Israel, pro-Zionist 
groups being banned uh, on college campuses despite a chemical weapons attack on Columbia. They're just singling out the individual students. They're not banning the entire chapter uh, of these groups. And you, this is a pattern that, again, rep repeats itself at the international stage. So you have today Biden singling out four specific people for sanctions regarding uh, or related to settler violence in the West Bank. Four people, but there have been hundreds of instances of violence in the West Bank. So these four people can't get can't use American banks or own property here. Well, wow, problem solved. However, when you have just merely reports or rumors or or whatever alleged involvement by some people with ties to UNRWA uh, participating in October 7th. The, enti like the entire organization gets its funding frozen. There are multiple countries who have discussed freezing funding to UNRWA uh, to varying degrees. And it's just the sledgehammer uh, approach on the pro-Palestinian side, however you want to frame it, and just a, a tiny little scalpel. <laughs> well, we'll just go after the individual people. And I think that really illustrates what you're talking about earlier, how people just summarily disregard or summarily categorize all Muslims or all Palestinians or all advocacy around this issue. But on the pro-Zionist, pro-Israel side, it's just, oh, we're taking it on a case-by-case -case basis. And I think that the, the former represents a, a laziness, uh, an Islamophobia inherent in a lot of Western people's minds. Absolutely. Well, and, and just to talk a little bit about the campus specifics is you're seeing various trends. So the first trend is that policies that had never been enforced were now selectively are being selectively enforced against Palestinian students, Arab students, Muslim students, SJP students. Columbia is the only example where you saw Jewish Voice for Peace suspended for part of last semester. In all other cases, at least based on my reading of the news, it's been focused on Students for Justice in Palestine or other groups that are minority groups uh, in terms of the selective enforcement of these policies so that they have pretext to suspend them, to shut them down, to deny them space, to cancel their events, to not approve their uh, events. Then you also have passing of new policies, which they claim have nothing to do with the SJP activities or 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 uh, advocacy for Palestinian human rights, but instead these are just necessary, even though the timing is quite suspicious. Um, the third thing you have is universities are throwing their students under the bus. So they're talking out of both sides of their mouth. On the one hand, they're claiming we care about, we wanna create a welcoming, inclusive environment for all of our students, and that's why we care so much about anti-Semitism, and we have to bend over backwards to take every allegation of anti-Semitism seriously, even when that allegation is nothing more than, I'm offended that there is a protest on my campus, or I'm offended that the speaker came and actually talked about the suffering of Palestinians in Gaza uh, or in the United States. And, and it's not that a particular Jewish student or faculty or, or property has been vandalized or hurt because again, they're Jewish. Um, so, but they're not defending, they're not in any way in this DEI or wel welcoming inclusive environment uh, goal that they have, they're not in any way trying to do that for their Muslim, Arab, or Palestinian students. Uh, and so this double standard is just glaring, even though these students pay tuition and they're supposed to be equal members of the 
of, of the campus. Um, and then the fourth thing you're seeing is that they're effectively uh, allowing these, what we call lawfare or administrative complaint fair, where students and faculty are filing frivolous complaints against Palestinian Arab Muslim students and, and to some extent, Jewish progressive students, but not as much, uh, the volume is not as high, to harass these students. It is nothing more than cowardly punching down. And oftentimes the students and the faculty are working with external Zionist organizations, whether it's the Zionist Organization of America, the Brandeis uh, Center, uh, you know, they're, they're the ADL, there are many others who are helping these students and these faculty to harass the Muslim, Arab, and Palestinian students. So it, it has truly become um, a, a war zone, right? It, discursively and, and in terms of the, the abuse of the policies and administrative complaint process. Yeah, I'm like we mentioned Colombia and and what happened with Jewish Voice for Peace there. Like I'm, I, a lot of that has been led by this. Uh, I think he's like an economics professor, Shai Davidai, who went viral early on in this in this conflict, having this big like self righteous kind of phony speech where he claimed about how his his son somehow was unsafe because of these pro Palestine protests. Um, and then I think is the like that's the double standard in action when you see him repeatedly attacking the students tuition paying students at the university, like you point out predominantly Muslim but also Jewish students as well, continually attacking them, suggesting that they support Hamas, they support terrorism, um, condoning this like chemical attack that took place, all the while claiming that he feels unsafe and he I feel so unsafe. How does this affect me? Um, it's you really see that dichotomy and that double standard in action. I, I think it's really, really grotesque. So I we mean, call that all, white privilege mixed with white fragility. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, or you know, we we talk about the the whole the phrase from the river to the sea. Like apparently, this is this has just been decided now that uh, because a few pro-Israel, very loud pro-Israel people have determined that this is apparently a call for the genocide of all Jewish people, which we all know that that is not the case. Um, you know, that's a phrase that's been chanted at every pro-Palestine rally for many years. I've been to many of them. And that gets taken as just a fact then that that's a, a genocidal call for violence. And then we have a big round of discourse about what that means. And maybe we should soften that language and we need to make feel make sure people feel comfortable and meanwhile like these these zionist professors and students who support an actual genocide that's happening right now that is okay and it's okay for them to support the actual genocidal mass murder campaign that's currently happening that's being subsidized by the united states government and the canadian government but this particular this particular phrase is so terrifying and damaging and makes us feel unsafe uh this whole discourse is just so crazy making. Like I feel like it's almost intentionally designed to make you feel like you're losing your mind. And I think because of the the severity and the and the brutality of the violence that we're seeing, it it feels extra um, jarring to get perpetually caught in these cycles of discourse about slogans and phrases and protests while there's this horrific violence going on. Well, that's um, intentional. Which is just unabated. I, yeah, well, that is also a very intentional. American Zionist agenda, which is to distract and detract from the real 
harm, right? The, the real threat to Palestinians, which is the humanitarian crisis, the mass starvation, the genocidal practices. And so I think it's, it's not accidental. Uh, and I'll just point out that <laughs> we actually did some research uh, about this from the river to the sea and found numerous tens of examples of Israeli officials using that term for the purpose of ethnically cleansing, forcibly displacing all Palestinians from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea because they believe that that is Eretz Israel and no, and it only belongs to the Jews. So if you, if you want to, you know, if they want to go that route to argue that from the river to the sea should be literally interpreted as genocidal based on interpretations of that phrase back in the 60s, and the 70s, which was a very long time ago. And, you know, there's a completely new generation of Palestinians and, and advocates of, of Palestinian human rights who do not see, who do not interpret, as you said, from the river to the sea to mean genocide, but they interpret it as Jewish security and Palestinian freedom and Palestinian self-determination and Jewish self-determination from the river to the sea. Whether you want to do it through a, a two-state solution or whether you want to do it from a one-state solution where both, you know, communities live together in one sovereign state or within a, a state that is this by this federalist, that's up to them to decide. But effectively, what it means for those who are supporting Palestine is that you cannot have Jewish supremacy from the river to the sea without resulting right in Palestinian either genocide or permanent brutal occupation. And that's not acceptable. Um, so, so I think that it's ironic that that term's been used in the contemporary era by the Israeli officials to, in fact, mean uh, a genocide. Let's get into uh, your report. Now, you published this uh, last year, late last year, but it didn't begin. Your research certainly didn't begin uh, in the in the wake of October seventh. Now. The report is called Presumptively Anti-Semitic Islamophobic Tropes in Palestine-Israel Discourse. And again, just as the history didn't begin on October 7th, this, this dynamic didn't begin right after uh, October 7th. It was certainly supercharged and introduced to a lot of new and especially younger people. Um, but could you talk about what motivated you to write this and could you summarize some of your key findings? Well, as I stated, the, there has been over two decades now of peddling, you know, open peddling of Islamophobic tropes, which has had very serious, harmful consequences for real people. They're, they've lost their jobs, their children have been bullied, they've lost their liberty, they've been deported, there's been a Muslim ban, uh, and they've been subjected to hate crimes. So this is not simply hurt feelings. This isn't simply, I don't like what you have to say, but this environment and this acceptance of anti-Muslim stereotypes uh, and this dehumanization of, of Muslim communities has, has caused a lot of harm. And one trope that has been peddled but hasn't received sufficient attention was this trope that Muslims hate Jews, this false stereotype that Muslims hate Jews, that Islam teaches Muslims to hate Jews. And that is a false stereotype. Um, and it is completely anachronistic in terms of comparing what happened in 
after 1948 when Israel was established. And then that triggered a geopolitical conflict between the state, the newly established state of Israel and its Arab neighbors, where the Israelis said, this is a Jewish state for the Jewish people. And in fact, begged and, 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 and bribed and uh, manipulated many Jewish Arabs that were in Iraq and Iran and Egypt, uh, in Jordan and Syria to, they wanted them to immigrate to Israel. Meanwhile, you also had Arab regimes who were in fact collectively punishing the Jews who had lived there for generations. Um, and that is a travesty, but that is very different. That is a unique political, geopolitical issue of a, uh, that is arises from a particular political momentous political event, right? The assassination of Israel. But that in no way can then be um, used to claim categorically that Muslims hate Jews. Uh, and it takes it completely out of context. And it's effectively saying, well, because we have white nationalists, all white people hate black people. There are some white people who hate black people. But, and, and yes, white nationalists or American nativists are white. But that would be ridiculous for us to just take that and make a blanket statement. So the so the report effectively is trying to address um, uh, this this systemic, deeply rooted problem because the effect of it, which we're seeing now, and that is, it's actually for, it's coincidental. We started on this report over a year ago because this problem's been around for a while. Uh, but it's coincidental that it's very timely because when people believe. And when they're lied to and told, oh, well, when Professor Aziz is giving you analysis about uh, Israeli policies and practices that are critical, her motivations, if, if the allegation is her motivation is anti-Semitism, then what's the effect? Dismiss, discredit, disregard. So if you do that, then you have a whole swath of experts that are Muslims or Arab, and most people don't know that the majority of Arabs in America are actually Christian, but that doesn't really matter. Islamophobia affects anyone who's, who's Arab or Muslim. Yeah. And, and effectively what happens is all of those experts now are not uh, relied on for the knowledge that they have. Similarly, the protesters, the Palestinians, the Muslim students, anytime they want to engage in civic engagement, public debate, public discourse, that doesn't toe the, the, the line of Zionists, they're automatically accused of anti-Semitism. Now, Zionists can accuse people of anti-Semitism all they want. The question, you're not going to stop them from doing that because they have they just have a completely incorrect definition of it. The, the question is, why do people believe them? Because I would proffer that when people argue or claim that Jewish Voice for Peace is anti-Semitic, I don't think anybody believes them because it sounds outrageous. Yeah. And so what our report is attempting to do is say, look, you should be equally uh, scrutinous and skeptical when someone accuses a Muslim of anti-Semitism, unless they have evidence that this person did something that is clearly you know, directed at Jewish people or a Jewish person to harm them. It is not simply criticizing Israel, alleging Israel's committing genocide. In other words, if you were to switch out Israel with America or Israel with Egypt or Israel with Iran, would you still conclude that that is racist? Yeah. Like, why is it that a Jewish person or a Christian person can go and criticize Iran 
and they're not Islamophobic, right? They're not Islamophobic. I would never accuse them of that. That's they're just engaging in. I can I may debate them on the merits of their political critique, but I'm not going to go and argue they're Islamophobic because they're criticizing Iran, which is a, a Muslim country, or Saudi Arabia because it's a Muslim country. It's just it's a ridiculous proposition, but because of the dehumanization of Muslims, it works. And that's what this report is intended to push back on. And really, hopefully people, you know, your audience will read it. Again, it's called Presumptively Anti-Semitic Islamophobic Tropes in the Palestine-Israel Discourse, and it can be downloaded at csrr.rutgers.edu. But I'm hoping that people will read it and then realize that this is actually a very bad faith manipulation um, and, and a bad faith um, campaign to censor uh, and, and smear Muslims. Yeah, this uh, this very cynical uh, deployment of these claims of anti-Semitism is something that I've been kind of interested in in unpacking for as long as I've been paying attention to this issue. I think what the issue when I when I first started paying close attention to it was in the the flotilla incident, the flotilla of peace when the aid flotilla was being sent into Gaza by these international humanitarian organizations, and the IDF attacked the flotilla and killed a bunch of people on board. And I thought it was so shocking. And then that was that was one of the most radicalizing events on this for me. And, I, and since that time, every time one of these kind of incidents pops up, I really notice how this how this is used really, really cynically. And like you mentioned before, it ultimately harms Jewish people because I think people get the idea that this that that it is something that's being just totally cynically weaponized and used to justify these geopolitical goals. Um, one thing that I've noticed too, and we talk about the way that this actually harms Jewish people, especially is that one thing that I've seen, I've been part of this movement, I've been to these protests, and I will always push back on these kinds of claims that the pro-Palestine movement is anti-Semitic. But one thing that I think we've been seeing lately is the fact that there are actually anti-Semitic people that are now latching on to that movement in order to sort of launder their genuinely anti-Semitic beliefs. Um, like, I don't know if you've noticed, there's these like Twitter accounts uh, that popped up over the last few months, like Stop Zionist Hate or what's the other one, Jordan? It's like something. Uh, I, I don't remember the name, but they're like all general under the anti-Zionist framework. And they yeah. try to appear like a credible organization. And that they started, they started with real instances of Islamophobia. And they started sharing other vid other people's videos of real instances of Islamophobia. And then over time, it's like. Hey, uh, you know, I don't agree with everything Hitler said, but he's making some good points about the Jews here. It's like, what the, where, yeah, how do yeah. we get from A to B? It's really strange. Like they, they latched onto this movement and it's, you know, that's actually a service in pointing out the ways that this is really cynically deployed and the way that like these Zionists do try to ruin people's lives. Like that could actually be a valuable service. But then it seems like these accounts are smuggling in genuine like Holocaust denial or sort of like Hitler apology or Nazi apologia into their pro-Palestine advocacy. And I don't know, this this kind of thing makes me incredibly suspicious because it seems almost designed to smear the Palestine movement intentionally by by creating that exact kind of phenomenon and it, showing something that people can then point to just to talk about the anti-Semitism within that movement. But uh, I don't know if it's a case of there's something more serious going on or sinister or if, whether it's just a, you know, reactionary right-wing people anti-semites that are that are latching onto this movement in order to launder their views but i was just wondering if you would notice that phenomenon and, and what you make of that as someone that's been so immersed in this kind of dialogue and discourse yeah so i admittedly 
have not learned of these until it hit mainstream media um, because I think some of them are not on my radar and then some of them it's hard to tell uh, what the sources are. But I think what it points to is the importance of universities being where people should be engaging. Uh, I mean, we all know about the dangers of misinformation and disinformation. We learned that from the Russian uh, interference of our elections. We, I mean, we now have a full appreciation of how difficult it is um, to deal with social media and knowing what's real and what's not. Um, and usually figuring out that something is not authentic or accurate until long after it's it's kind of taken root. So again, what I have always told people is if you shut down debate and discourse and exposure to um, different perspectives by experts, right, whether it's in K through 12 schools or whether it's in universities, you're just pushing people online. And the online world is the wild, wild west when it comes to accuracy, authentication. You need an audience, you need consumers that have very strong critical thinking skills that can do site checking, that can make sure, wait a minute, what is this source? How do I know this is actually accurate? How do I know what the agenda is behind it? Who's funding it? And as we know, <laughs> that is in short supply in terms of, of the consumer base. So it's, it's just all the more reason why universities should be welcoming conferences, panels, because, and also you see people, these are people in your community, right? You, you can question them, you can talk to them, you can have conversations rather than just shut down um, the debate. But, but I wanted to point out in our report, you know, we have a section called Dual Harms to Jews and Muslims. This report was co-authored with Mitchell Plitnick. Um, and we talk about not only how the use of weaponization of anti-Semitism harms Jews in the long run, because at some point people may stop believing it when it really happens, because it's so um, overused in, in cases where it's just not accurate. But the other harm is that it creates divisions, right, between Muslim students and Jewish students, or between Muslim communities and Jewish communities. Because if your community is constantly being attacked and accused of, uh, wrongfully accused, it makes that community feel distrustful of, well, why, why does everybody keep thinking that we hate this other community when that's not true? And then when you try to do interfaith activities or inter-community activities, you've created this level of distrust. Um, so I, I don't think that it's good for uh, trying to create more discussion, more discourse, more uh, interaction between Jewish American communities and Muslim American communities. And so I think we need to also be cognizant of that because one thing that's been really remarkable, and I'll, you know, from my generational vantage point, and I'm definitely not a college student, I'm, I'm way beyond that, but it's been refreshing to see progressive Jewish students ally and be in solidarity with and, and really support Palestinian students um, and defend Palestinian rights. I mean, whether it's the movie Israelism, which I highly recommend if people haven't seen it, it was eye-opening for me to learn about many Jewish American young people's experience and their relationship with Israel, because that was, you know, that's new to me as a Muslim Arab American, uh, or it's J Jewish Voice for Peace, or If Not Now. So there is this interesting kind of 
polarity to it where you have the what I see is the majority of Jewish Americans seem to really be sticking to this right wing Zionist approach, even though they may be Democrats, you know, in, in the elections. Uh, so it's the progressive except for Palestine or the liberal except for Palestine phenomena. Yeah. Um, but the minority and the younger Jewish Americans uh, are clearly committed to social justice for all. And and that has also broke down a lot of barriers uh, between Jewish and, and Muslim communities, especially among college students. So it's a mixed bag, and it'll be interesting to see the future of those community relations as things develop. Your point about the universities serving as, or that how they should serve as centers for this type of intellectual inquiry and free discussion is really important. When I was a freshman or sophomore in college, someone came to my school and just in a small room, I can't even remember which group put it on, but there was somebody who came in to do a media analysis of how deaths and killings between um, Israel and Palestine were reported in U.S. media. And, of course, it was lopsided and with a very pro-Israel bent, but oftentimes these deaths were reported multiple times, giving readers or viewers uh, and U.S. media consumers an even more lopsided impression, making them think that Israelis were being killed at like a 5x or 10x rate when really it was totally inverted. And in your study, you, you, you mention uh, a 2019 study of over 100,000 headlines in major U.S. newspapers found over four times more Israeli-centric headlines than Palestinian ones, and that coverage around the issue spikes during periods of escalated violence. I mean, what's old is new again. This is just a, this has been happening now for like 15 plus years at least. That's when I first heard of it, and that was a very formative moment for me. That shaped that session. Whoever that was, I don't even remember who the speaker was, but she completely changed my view of, I was, I kind of knew it was happening, but didn't know much about it, but that just set me on the path that I'm on now. So could you talk about this study, but also, again, I just, I think it's really, it's an important point to hit. I mean, universities should be celebrated for free thought, free intellectual inquiry. And that is purportedly what the right cares about. They want free speech on college campuses, but not on this, not on this issue. So Jordan, what you just described is a right-wing Zionist nightmare because they know that the facts are not on their side. And I'm saying right-wing on purpose because there is a spectrum of Zionism, right? So at the Center for Security, Raising Rights, which is what I uh, direct at Rutgers Law School, we had Peter Beinart and he came and gave a, a talk called uh, with Sarah Lee Whitson, who's, who's also a very well-known international human rights lawyer, talked about, it was called Consistent Partiality, U.S. Foreign Policy on Palestine-Israel. And he, you know, he gave a very interesting description of how he was a cultural Zionist, right? And in our teach-ins that we've given um, on, on Palestine and Israel, we've talked about spiritual Zionism versus political and the different types of political Zionism. So I want to acknowledge kind of those, those differences, and, and I tend to explicitly say right-wing political Zionism, which sadly is the predominant interpretation of Zionism among American Jewelry, Um, even by people, as I said, who are Democrat in their American politics. So they do not want students to even be exposed to academic 
not punditry, because frankly, I'm not interested in wasting students' time with punditry. They can go on social media for that. But universities is where you bring the experts who have done the studies, such as a media study, or the the experts that have looked at the humanitarian crisis, or that have looked, for example, at what is the difference between the settlements in the West Bank today as they were you know, 20 years ago, and how does that compare with the Oslo Agreement and the commitment that Israel had made to stop building settlements so that there could be a two-state solution. Um, so that's where the you know that there's bad faith involved, right? Because they are trying to hide the truth as opposed to we don't want misinformation or we don't want propaganda because the faculty, we know how to determine and distinguish between propaganda and, and peer-reviewed work, right? That is subject to critique, but it's critique on the merits in, within the, 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 what we call the realm of, of feasibility and plausibility. Um, so that's exactly what many of us want, is we just want to have those conversations. So the question is, why are the universities doing that? Why are the administrators doing that? So in some universities, the administrators are doing that because they too are Zionists. And so they're imposing their ideological biases, which is completely inappropriate and unprofessional, on their university environment. But I would say, I would argue that that might be less than you know half of those, maybe even the minority. The majority of administrators are doing it because they are serving the donors, not the students. That, and they're serving politicians, not the students. Because if they were serving the students, they would create an environment where different perspectives, as long as they've been peer reviewed and they're by experts, could be available to students and then allow the students to decide if they want to show up for those events or if they want to enroll in those classes. Um, and, and that environment that they're creating right now is authoritarian. It's on the way, it's on the path to authoritarianism. I'm an immigrant. My parents and I immigrated from Egypt. I was very young when I came. I've studied Egypt. I've studied authoritarianism. I'm very familiar with the literature and the trends. And what I'm seeing in this country, especially since the backlash against Barack Obama, the rise of the Tea Party and, and everything after, is it, we just keep getting inching closer and closer to the practices that you see in a dictatorship. We're not a dictatorship yet, but universities are a major battleground for democracy. The first thing a dictator does is he shuts down debate at universities, he fires faculty, he jails students, he quashes any kind of debate. So we're not at that extreme yet, but it's a path, right? It's a trajectory. It takes, it's, it's one step at a time, closer, closer. So what I always tell my colleagues who may disagree with me or who may be openly Zionist is say, is this really the type of country you want to live in? And it just takes the flip of the switch and then it's your subject that now can't be, you know, discussed and that can't be um, um, addressed. So, so I do think we all need to be very concerned about this quashing of, of any kind of, of debate on our campuses. Now, I will say, because the response of the right will say, see, we've been telling you this, this is why we're anti-woke, this is why we're anti-DEI. Okay, there's a difference between bringing somebody to speak or having a conference that is effectively peddling racist tropes and, and engendering hate versus bringing people that debate on the merits and who those people care about their reputation in their field such that they would never go around claiming things that are not corroborated. 
And I think that's the difference between the right wing wanting to bring non-experts, pundits, people who lead hate groups that will come and just vilify and smear and defame entire communities and claim that, well, they have a right to be there. It's like, but that's actually not an academic exercise, right? You can do that at your conference by your special interest group at your hotel that you rent out. That's not really that helpful for a university setting. And so I think that's the difference between the right wing claiming, see, we told you so, and the progressives that are that are trying to defend the human rights of Palestinians saying, no, we just want to have a, a debate by experts. Professor Aziz, we really thank you for your time and your insight. Where can people find the report, follow you, find more of your work? Well, the report is available on the website of the Center for Security, Race, and Rights, uh, csrr.rutgers.edu. And you can also follow the center on Instagram at Rutgers CSRR and on Twitter and Facebook at RUCSRR. And if you want to follow me on social media, my tag is Sahar Aziz Law, S-A-H-A-R-A-Z-I-Z-L-A-W. And um, we're also launching a podcast soon. So if people would like to learn more about the substantive work we do, uh, stay tuned for that. It's called the Race and Rights Podcast, and it will be launching in uh, February or March of 2024. So we're really excited uh, to, to use that also as another tool for public education on various issues related to uh, the civil and human rights of Muslims, Arabs, and South Asians. And finally, I will encourage people to follow the center on YouTube because we have a lot of excellent uh, lectures by academics, by experts uh, related to our, our mission. Professor Aziz, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me.